Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. My guest tonight is Diane, and she is a local friend. She is part of the Calvary Mac family. So some of you listening will know her and know her very well. And if you have never met her before, well, you get a treat. You get to know her tonight during our story night time. So Diane, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for taking time to share your story with us. And as we get started, I wanted to just ask you to give a brief introduction of of who you are so our listeners can get to know you. Thank you, Jessica. My name's Diane. I grew up in California, and a few years ago, we moved to Oregon to be closer to our boys. I'm retired. I'm married to my husband. We've been married for almost 41 years now, uh, and he's also retired. We live in Amity. I'm a quilter. Enjoy that. That's my favorite hobby, next to reading and spending time in God's Word. Well, I have seen your quilts, and I know they are beautiful, and I know that there is much more to your identity besides being a quilter, and we're really going to focus on that for your story, and I have a feeling that this this topic, this idea of your identity will resonate with so many listeners because so many of us as women in particular really can struggle with our identity, and we compare our identities with other women's identities and so forth. So we're going to go kind of chapter by chapter through your story, but I wanted to start with your childhood and ask, as a kid, how did you identify yourself? What was your kind of given identity during those childhood years? Well, it was being second generation Italian American, being Catholic, being an only child, and basically whatever my mother thought it should be whether I agreed with her or not. She had some very definite ideas of who I should be. Being an Italian-American second generation, uh, it meant that I ate a lot of Italian food. It was polenta. It was risotto. It was chicken bathed in a sauce, uh, a red sauce. It was spaghetti. Not much in the way of what we would call American food, Never was allowed to have a PB&J sandwich. Jelly, yes. Peanut butter, absolutely no. I didn't have much say in what I could ask for in terms of a meal. If I could have friends over, I couldn't. We went to church, my mother, my grandparents, her parents, and me, every Sunday. But my dad worked. He was self-employed. So we went to church every Sunday. And during that time, I knew God was real. I knew Jesus was real. I just didn't know that I needed to have a relationship, personal relationship with him. And I believed in prayer. So I did pray. I think that's a very common start to a relationship with God. There's so many women I talk with that started out somehow connected with some kind of church in some way, knowing a little bit about God. But then later, as their life goes on, the depth of that that knowledge and that relationship just changes drastically. And we'll get to that chapter for you. But within your teen years, I know you had mentioned having a, a fairly controlling mom. And for a lot of teenagers 
who grew up with very controlling parents, the teen years become a time of a very rebellious identity. So I'm curious how your teen years, your, you know, kind of junior high and high school years looked and what was your identity during that time period? I'd say I was the good girl. I grew up in a business district. We had Safeway on one side and Bank of America on the other and a parking lot behind us and a main street in front of us. So I had no neighborhood friends. I wasn't allowed to go to a neighborhood friend's house. My mother basically controlled my life. She chose my clothes to wear each day. I I had no say. So I was the good girl because getting her angry was not good. I, I There was no hitting or violence. She'd just lose her temper. And I didn't like dealing with, with any of that. It was really hard. My dad was was really nice. He was very loving. Um, one time we walked down to the new Burger King, which was a block away. And it was after he'd closed his store. So it was late at night. And he's telling me, don't worry. You know, it's okay. Yeah, your mom's a problem, but but don't worry. When when you're old enough, you can just go out on your own. He knew there was a problem, but there was nothing he could do unless he divorced her, and that was not going to happen. He did love her a lot. What a testimony to your father. And really what a picture of our Heavenly Father's love. It sounds like he really was quite an example of of unconditional love, and really, in some ways— loving the unlovable. I I know from hearing you describe kind of that relationship that he really gave you a model for that. And he said that at some point you could go off on your own. So when college came along, (laughs) I'm excited to get to this chapter. When college came along, tell me a little bit about your identity during those years. Well, again, my mother was very controlling. I didn't get to choose which college I went to. That turned out to be okay. I went to Santa Clara University. And when I was 20, I had a college roommate who knew the Lord, and she lived it in front of me. Through her lifestyle testimony and my belief in God and prayer, I asked God to give me what she had, and I became a believer at age 20. Now, I was a little bit rebellious in college. I mean, I'm 30 miles away from home. So, yeah, okay, I I did a little bit of drinking with the kids and that type of thing, but still, I was still pretty much the good girl, and then God was working in my life, so I never really went off the straight and narrow too far. So much of your identity, from what I'm hearing, was wrapped up in the control your mom had on your life, and that she told you who you were, what you should be, what you should wear, how you should live, all of that. And then here you are at age 20, really finding a new identity in who God says you are. Was that an overnight change for you? Was that a lot to process? Was that a slow adjustment? It wasn't a major change, but I think it was mainly because I already believed in God, in Jesus, and in prayer. It did mean that I did have to get a Bible. Growing up Catholic, you might have a Bible in the house. So I had to get a Bible, and my roommate recommended a King James. So I started reading and realized that I was understanding it. 
when I entered Santa Clara, I was pre-med. And it was a struggle for me. I think internally, I was sabotaging myself because I didn't really want to be a doctor. So I was on academic probation. My advisor told me that he advised all of his pre-med students to take business law. Went and took business law, which was in the School of Business. Switched my major to accounting. I'm good with numbers. No problem. I aced most of those courses without an issue. My mother was sort of proud of me at the end, but she still would have preferred I'd been a doctor. I graduated with my degree in accounting. Technically, Santa Clara's School of Business at the time told me that my degree was in commerce, but my major is accounting. I graduated from college, and my college roommate who led me to the Lord and our friend from across the hall and I all rented a house together in San Jose, and we were all attending a church in Los Gatos, non-denominational. Janie and I went to the singles group, and that's where I met my husband, Bob. He didn't uh, get my mother's approval. Mom wanted me to marry someone who was either a doctor or a lawyer, especially since I didn't become a doctor. She wanted someone who was Italian. She would prefer they'd be rich. Millionaire or better would have been nice. Oh, and Catholic, obviously. Bob was a blue-collar worker. He was raised in the Baptist church. He definitely was not wealthy, and he wasn't Italian. She disowned me before we got married. My dad was fine with it. She was not. Bob's a really loving man, caring, and we have two wonderful children, my stepson and my son. I couldn't have asked for someone better. We only dated for six weeks before he proposed, and we were engaged for six months and one week. And the only reason for that extra week is, you want to get married when, according to the church? No, we can't let you get married Easter weekend. <laughs> so we got married the weekend after. And we went up to Grass Valley and went gold panning for our honeymoon. <laughs> Please tell me, how did you come up with that idea? <laughs> the whole honeymoon was Bob's plan. I knew we were going to Grass Valley, but until we got there, right and bought panning equipment. I had no idea we were going to go gold panning, but it was fun. Oh, Bob, that that is a unique honeymoon if I have ever heard one. <laughs> I love it. You know, I think panning for gold, you know, you're really looking for that that treasure. And I think you were his treasure. He found you. Now, for most for most women, becoming a wife is definitely a part of their identity. And as we're all sort of raised to first comes love, then comes marriage, and then comes, you know, the lady with the baby carriage. Mm -hmm. And we have this idea of, we, you know, we get our MRS, we become our miss, become a missus, and then we become a mom. That's the next step of the, you know, identity. And for you, that chapter maybe didn't look exactly as you had planned it as a child. You have a couple of different ways that you became a mom. I think a lot of women will identify with this in that you became an instant mom upon your marriage because you got a stepson. It was interesting to become a stepmom. I had no idea how to be a mother. I didn't have a very good example as a mother. So I'd say I struggled because Bob was divorced. 
I chose not to have David call me mom because I didn't want to upset her. So he calls me Diane. A couple of times he has slipped and called me mom, and I've always praised him for it. But I didn't want to upset her. And over the years, she and I have actually become friends. I'd say the first couple of years, he was living with my in-laws so that he could be in a Christian school because they lived in Saratoga and his mom and stepdad had moved up to Hayward and then up to Sacramento. So it was easier for him to be in school down here. And then when he hit, I don't recall if it was seventh or eighth grade, he came to live with us. We had our, our challenges, but I love him as if he were my own. About three years after we got married, I got pregnant for the first time, and we were both looking so forward to this. Bob had gone into his boss and said, I need to take this time off next year. And his boss is going, that's our busy season. And they went back and forth till the boss finally figured out, wait a minute, are you going to be a father? <laughs> and unfortunately, in December of 83, I miscarried. I'm in the hospital having a DNC after the miscarriage, and Bob's trying to get a hold of somebody at our church, and there was nobody there. Nobody to get a hold of. No, It was a really rough time for us. And we told my parents that we were expecting, and Dad was so excited. Mom was excited. Dad was really excited. And unfortunately, he passed away in April of 84, which is about when I got pregnant the second time. My dad was a very gentle man, very loving man. When he died, going from the church to the cemetery, the line of cars was over a mile long. People loved him, and he cared about people. He laughed a lot. I gave birth to James in January of 85. I'm really sorry my dad didn't get to know him. I really appreciate your authenticity in talking about that because there are so many, so many women have experienced a heartbreaking miscarriage. And so many women have experienced the death of a loved one, particularly a parent, and very often too soon, you know, where that parent doesn't get to meet the next generation or doesn't get to participate in that life changing event or whatever, whatever it is that you just really wish, you know, he or she was there. And you really experienced two very heavy losses very close to each other. And I think that's another thing a lot of listeners identify with is that that Job season where you just feel like, I can't take any more grief. And then the next call comes or the next tragedy happens or the next crisis. And it feels like too much. And so at this point in your life, I was wondering, you know, what was your identity during this season and how how was God telling you who you really were in the midst of all of the tragedy? What was your relationship like with him at this time? I was hanging on to God with everything I could. When I miscarried, I would have thought that my mother would have been very understanding. I'd just lost a child. And her reaction was, well, at least it wasn't a baby. If I hadn't had Jesus, I think I would have lost it. I needed Jesus, and I'm so thankful I had him at that time. He told me I was his child and that he loved me, and I grew during that time, although I didn't realize it till much later. But I grew in his love. 
you know, when we let him, he's really good at speaking into our identity and really reminding us of our worth and our value and who we really are. And I know for you, you had a pretty big turning point in understanding who you really were. So what happened when you were 40 that greatly altered your understanding of your identity? So when I was 40, I was in the middle of changing jobs. And I don't know what form they call it now, but back then it was called an I-9 that you had to complete for your new employer, proving that you had the right to work in the United States. Well, we had some pipes break in our house, so everything had been packed up, and I had no idea which box any of the important paperwork was in. So I had no idea where my Social Security card was. I had no idea where my birth certificate was. So I drove to Social Security and applied for one, but that was going to take six weeks. Then I called Santa Cruz just before my lunch hour at work and requested a copy of my birth certificate, gave them my credit card, and they told me three days. Wonderful. And less than five minutes later, the office puts through a call to my desk, and I answer it, and they said, but sorry, we don't have a record of your birth. Are you sure you're not adopted? And I said something to the effect of, well, I didn't think I was, but I guess I am. Thank you very much. Hung up the phone, walked to the front office, said, I'll see you all after lunch, left and drove to my mother-in-law's, told her the story, and she said, yes, I knew you couldn't be related to her. Uh, And that was the start of my journey of trying to figure out, okay, I'm not part of this adoptive family. I am, but I'm not. That's not where my identity is coming from. So who am I? Finding out I was adopted at age 40 was definitely exciting because it meant I wasn't related to this person who tried to control every aspect of my life. It was a very happy occasion because my mother was mentally ill and to not be related to her made a whole world difference in what I could see in the future. At that point, I'm saying she was mentally ill. I didn't really know she was truly mentally ill until a couple of years ago, talking to a nurse friend. And for whatever reason, getting onto the medication my mother had been taking, I had been told it was a tranquilizer. And my friend looked at me and said, oh, she was on that? Oh, she was mentally ill. Do you know what she had? And it was a drug that in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, they gave to people who had any sort of mental illness. I look back at it now and say, well, she was a little OCD, and I would call it manic depressive. I think they call that bipolar now. Anyway, my mother-in-law was so excited about my finding out I was adopted that she found an adoptee's support group that met in Santa Clara. And Bob and I went there and brought it. By the way, Bob found all the documentation. He knew what box. He just didn't tell me what box. So we took my my birth certificate over. And the guy looks and says, oh, standard adoptee's birth certificate. My name was typed. My parents' signatures were typed. The address said, same as above. There's no same as above. There's nothing up there. It's a blank line. The only signature on there was the doctor's. Thanks to that group, he had access to some microfiche that had been 
thrown away for my birth year. So there's a long process to go through to figure out all of this information. But the one thing that does not change on an adoptee's birth certificate versus the original is the number they assign. That does not change. So I had that number and Bob went through and then finally I went through and found my birth mother's name. No birth father listed. But the moment I found that name and told my husband what it said, I've been the missing link ever since because my birth mother's name was Mary A. Link. I requested information from the state of California because all of the records for adoptees are up there. So I found out that my birth mother was 25. There was a little information about my birth father. He was 27. My birth father was from North Carolina. My birth mother was from South Carolina, but she was born in the Philippines and she had two brothers. I tried to, before the age of PCs, it's 1993, you still can't do it much with internet. So I'm trying to find out what I can about an unmarried woman by the name of Mary A. Link. Yeah, want to know how many links there were in the phone books? An impossible task. As you talk about discovering that you were adopted, I think that brings up the topic for so many people who are in that same boat, which is, how does that feel for your adoptive family? And in your case, you really sort of had, you know, a tale of two parents in that you had one adoptive parent, your father, that really was such a model of, of unconditional love and support and, and just um, just sounds like he was amazing. And then you you had a, such a strained relationship with your adoptive mother who, as you came to find out much later, really was suffering through mental illness, which probably explained an awful lot. When you found out you were adopted, did you go talk to your adoptive mother about this? Were you ever able to restore any of your relationship as you learned more about maybe what was going on with her mentally and or maybe just even as you understood your identity more in Jesus, did that change how you saw her and how your relationship went? So I'd love to kind of ask how 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 that chapter um, kind of unfolded for you. Well, I found out in 93 that I was adopted. In 94, I finally wrote her a letter because if I called, she'd hang up. In the letter, I asked her why she never told me. And her response was, well, I haven't been well, but if you want to call me, I'll answer any pertinent questions. And she never answered the question I asked her. And basically, I was still disowned until about 1999. And what triggered her deciding to talk to me again was that Bob decided to send her a Mother's Day gift. I don't remember what it was, but he sent her something. And for Father's Day, she sent him from Seas Candies, a chocolate tie. And within a couple of months, she was talking to me again. When we started talking again in Santa Cruz at her house, she started to tell me all about my adoption from her perspective and told me the reason she'd never told me was that the doctor, the family doctor, told her to never tell me I was adopted. But she remained in my life until she died in November of 06, and whereas at the beginning of this new relationship, she was, she would watch her words, she would be kind, she would 
be nice to Bob. But it was obvious to me that she still didn't like him. The last three months of her life, she decided that I was no good and Bob was absolutely wonderful. Well, by this time he'd retired and he was the caregiver. <laughs> so he took her to all her doctor's appointments, made sure that she got fed and all of that. And I was still working. I'd say during the years that she was talking to me again that, yeah, I had some bitterness toward her because because of how nasty she could be and how demanding she could be. By the time she passed, I was okay. I'd worked through all of that, although occasionally I still get a twinge when an old memory might come to mind, and I have to deal with that when it does. But I did love her, and I did forgive her. I think it's wonderful that you were able to forgive her, even though that might not have been very easy. God makes it pretty clear that we are to forgive, and he makes it pretty clear that we're supposed to honor our parents, even if it feels like somebody doesn't deserve our forgiveness or deserve our honor. And when mental illness is a factor, it can certainly make it all the more complicated. I'm glad you've been able to forgive and heal and move forward and appreciate that you are so honest about the fact that there are still times when you feel that, as you said, twinge. I think a lot of women will relate to that, as oftentimes forgiveness and healing isn't a perfectly linear journey. And so when you found out you were adopted at age 40, we've, we've sort of followed the path regarding your relationship with your adoptive mother. But now if we go back to that part in your story when you found out you were adopted, there was another path that branched off, which really led you into the role of detective as you discovered more and more about your biological family. So I'd love now to kind of backtrack and pick up at that point you left us off where you weren't able to find much information about a Mary A. Link. And as I understand, it was a pretty long time in between your initial search and when you actually started to get some real information. Fast forward to a month before my 60th birthday, 20 years later, and I get on my computer and there's a Facebook request from Linda, the wife of a guy I grew up with. I didn't know her at the time, and I knew he was not on Facebook. Well, okay, fine, I'll accept the friend request. And again, this five-minute time frame, it wasn't even five minutes, and she's written back to me after I accepted her friend request with, Wayne knows something about your birth family if you're interested. Pretty sure I screamed. And then very calmly typed back, oh, sure. And she'd asked for email or, or phone number. I gave her my phone number. My cell phone rings. I looked at it and went, okay, that, that has to be Wayne. And I answered it, hi, Wayne. And he goes, hi, cousin. And I was like, what? I mean, I grew up with him. What do you mean, cousin? His mom was the first person to hold me after I was born. My mother was her cousin. My mother had been shipped out to Santa Cruz found out 
that Santa Cruz at that point in time was considered a birthing capital for unwed moms. So she knew who I was when I was born. Remembering that I was Catholic, went to catechism, so did Wayne, and his mom helped out. And she's looking at me, and apparently I was the spitting image of my mother at the same age. So she got to talking to me, and I don't remember any of this, but this is the story. She found out when my birthday was. She and her husband went to my parents, not to take me away, but to build a relationship so that I would grow up knowing my birth family. And my mother lost her mind, tore them up one side and down the other, and I guess that they had all been friends before this. They weren't. They were not friends. Wayne's parents, Bill and Jocelyn, had to go home and tell their four kids, yes, she's adopted, she is your cousin, and her parents don't want her to know that, so you cannot say anything. It's not our place. So, in 2014, why did Wayne suddenly feel he could tell me? I had told my classmates. So he's trying to find out from a mutual friend if I knew anything. And finally, Peggy turned to him and said, Wayne, she knows she's adopted. So he could tell me. As it turns out, I had a sister. Sally, it was my half-sister. She passed away about three years ago. I never got to meet her. She had been through a few things with the family and decided she didn't want to have anything more to do with the family, and that included her sister that she never met. And I have a half-brother, Chuck. At the time that this is all happening, where I'm finding out who my birth family is, no one in the family on the West Coast knew I had a brother. Wayne sent out an email blast to family and The family historian, Cheryl, sent out an email to my uncle. Actually, she sent it to his son, Bob. And Bob came back with, um, let me talk to my brother. And the next email was, hi, I'm Bob's brother, Chuck. I'm Diane's brother. My aunt and uncle adopted him as well. But nobody knew about him on the West Coast. The East Coast family knew, for the most part. But the West Coast family didn't. And how he ended up being adopted by my aunt and uncle is an interesting story in and of itself. As I mentioned, my mother was born in the Philippines. So were both of my uncles. So my biological maternal grandparents were in the Philippines, and my biological maternal grandparents, Emily and Francis. Francis died when he was about 31, and Emily decided that, and apparently had promised him that she would bring the children to the States, to South Carolina, to get to know his family. So she did that. And they got here, and she was here, I think, about a year, got the flu, and died. So now all three children are in the States, and the only family they'd really known was back in the Philippines. So my grandfather's sister, Aunt Marie, and her husband, Seep, decided, well, let's see if they'll let us adopt them. So letters back and forth. Family in the Philippines agreed that they could adopt them, but they had to keep their last name. So they grew up in Abbeville, South Carolina. When my mother was pregnant with Chuck... At that point in time, my aunt and uncle had lost a baby, a little baby girl. 
and Aunt Rhea, as they called her, was apparently a force of nature. She informed my mother that she was giving her son to my aunt and uncle, and nobody argued with her. My mother turned Chuck over to her brother and sister-in-law, which is how Chuck became my (laughs) half-brother. So he's writing this, and the very next day I called him and we talked for a bit. So I have a relationship with my brother, who happens to be a Presbyterian pastor. Both of my uncles, Uncle Bill and Uncle Bobby, were Presbyterian pastors. They've both passed. I never met Uncle Bill's wife. My aunt, Mary Ann, who is my Uncle Bob's wife, is still around. And I have lots and lots of cousins I never knew about. Well, listeners, if you're anything like me, you might have either a pencil and paper out by now trying to draw the family tree, or you're trying to do it in your head, as I was doing when we went on a walk and had this discussion for the first time. And it's just incredible, the Really, I mean, it's a very complicated family tree, but but in God's eyes, it's not complicated to him, and he has a purpose for every life within that family tree. And that's for all of you, whether whether your family tree looks very clean and neat and tidy and ever, you know, just really easy to draw out, or if you have one that's got an awful lot of branches and some of those branches are super tangled. It's very incredible to me how God continued to write your story and define who you are and continue to elaborate on your identity, really teaching you every every layer of who you are in him. So for a listener who might have really identified with one or more parts of your story, maybe somebody who had a very strained relationship with a parent or another family member, or somebody who really felt like she just never quite belonged within a particular part of the family or somebody who who struggled through some grief. What might you say to that woman who doesn't fully understand her identity or has her identity in something that's not founded on the truth? First of all, my identity wasn't in my adoptive family. Couldn't have been. There's no relationship there. There was with my dad, but not with my mom. It couldn't be in my birth family because I've only known some of them for six years, and a few of them even less than that. My identity is in Christ. Without him, I couldn't have made it through any of this. I would have fallen apart the first time anything went wrong. I'm adopted into the family of God. Jesus is my strength. He guides me, and he loves me, and if I didn't have that permanent lifeline. I don't know where I'd be or who I would be, but I'm a stronger person because of it. And for the woman who is listening in, you can have that too. Beautiful words and beautiful truth. I love that you pointed out that your identity doesn't rest solely within an adoptive family or a biological family. I think so often we we give greater weight to biological bloodlines than than adoptive family connections and and yet reading through God's word you hear that word adopted over and over we are adopted into God's family and what does that really mean for a lot of us we don't we can't understand that in the way that perhaps an orphan who really was adopted into a completely new life would understand it 
the metaphor is there and it's one of the most beautiful ones because you're wanted. God didn't just have you. He wanted you. He chose you, chose to adopt you into his family. And that identity is true for every single person listening. One of the things we always like to do as we close is to pray. And I wanted to pray for all of the ladies listening, specifically for you to find your true identity and that your identity is not in the way other people see you. It's not in the way social media portrays you. It's not in any of those things. It's not in your hobbies. It's not in your career. It's not in your relationships. Your identity is in God. Your identity is in Christ. And that is going to be my prayer for you. So Father, thank you so much for all the women who are listening. Thank you for Diane and the story you've written in her life. I pray, Lord, right now that that every lady, no matter what age or life stage she is in, that every lady listening would really know who she is. She is your daughter. She is the daughter of a king, and that makes her a princess. She is chosen. She is adopted, wanted, desired, loved, valued, cherished. She is worthy. She's amazing. You did not make a mistake with her. And no matter what anybody else says, she is yours. And I pray, Lord, that that truth would just sink in so deep and her identity in you would be the only identity that matters. Thank you for the stories you're writing and a chance to share them so that every lady listening knows she's not alone. Would you bless her this week? And thank you for all that you're doing and all that you're working in each of the lives. Thank you for our identities. In your name, Jesus, amen. Thank you, Diane, so much for opening your story and just sharing about everything from from some you know turbulent years and, and grief and finding out more about your story. It really has, you've unraveled a mystery in many ways. (laughs) And I appreciate you sharing that with all of us and taking time to do that. Thank you everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed tonight's story and we hope you come back next week for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.